Please open your Bibles to Luke 15, 8 through 10. The passage may be found in your pew Bibles on page 874. I will be reading from the English Standard Version, which is the translation that Pastor Wes Holland will be preaching from. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his holy word. Thank you, Daniel. It's so great to see the youth of the church growing up and, and uh, serving the Lord. Um, and and uh, great job. You know, as we're talking about the youth of the church growing up, at the risk of uh, embarrassing Isaac, uh, Isaac Fernandez is here with his new bride. They were married in, um, at the very end of May, and it's good to see you this morning. Uh, I don't, with all the changes with COVID, and, and I don't know if, if, uh, how many of you know that uh, Lino and Maria moved up to Atlanta uh, because of his job. And uh, so they are living up there. Uh, Lino Jr. got married during COVID. He lives on the other side of Tampa. And uh, Isaac is now married, and it's good to see you. I am so eager to preach this sermon. Sometimes I tell people, I, I, I step into the pulpit like a, uh, a pregnant woman ready to give birth. I'm just so eager. Well, this morning, um, I'm ready to give triplets. So I'm excited this morning. Now I know all the ladies are going to be uh, lined up. You have no idea what it means to give birth. I do have a little bit of an idea. I've heard that it's like pinching your upper lip and then stretching it back over your head, right? So ladies, if, I understand a little bit, but not much about what it means to give birth. Um, I'll be quiet there. I was just thinking... <laughs> Yeah, I'll be quiet. Let's pray. Father, uh, we ask that you would be here with us. We have this, uh, this picture, frankly, of you um, personified by this, uh, this woman searching our house. And God, we ask that you would, um, as Paul prays for the Ephesians, open the eyes of our heart that uh, we might be able to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of God. Um, be our teacher, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I have this question I want to ask you. Uh, turn on your imagination, as I was uh, telling the, the children in my Sunday school to do this morning, and try and picture... God's attitude toward the ungodly. What, what picture comes to your mind of his face as God thinks of the ungodly? What's his attitude toward sinners? Do you have an, a picture um, without being idolatrous? Uh, you have a, a picture in your mind of God's attitude toward the ungodly. Well, this 
this parable displays his attitude or his disposition toward the wicked. In this parable, you're not going to see any eager wrath or impatient desires for vengeance. There's no frowning face. His hand is not raised in anger. His posture is stooped over, even on his hands and knees. But he's stooped over not in in old age, but rather he is persistently looking for the lost coin, which represents the soul that is so precious to him. And when he finds it, what does he do? He rejoices. He throws a party in heaven. In fact, there's, as you look at this passage in the Greek, the woman, when she finds the coin, she invites, the, 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 the Greek is in the, the feminine, and so she, she invite, her friends are all lady friends. In other words, the ladies know how to throw a party. They don't want the guys spoiling it. And so they all gather together to throw this great bash because she is so happy that she has found this one coin, this one coin out of ten that she has lost. And uh, Jesus goes on and says that the angels of God in heaven Rejoice along with him. What a great picture of God's attitude or his disposition toward the wicked. And this is in keeping with the rest of Scripture. Remember how God longed for Israel over 1,500 years uh, going after them. And when they turn their back and run, he keeps pursuing and he keeps pursuing the first chapter of Hosea, where his people are so wicked and rebellious and so uh, adulterous, he calls them uh, loami, not my people. But then in the very next sentence, he starts talking about how he longs for them and how he pursues them. Even though they won't have anything to do with him, he continues to pursue them. Remember how the Apostle Paul said, And to the one who does not work, but believes him who justifies. Who justifies what? Who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. He doesn't, count, he doesn't justify the people that are slightly better than other people. He doesn't justify the people who had smarts, who were smart enough to go to Jesus. He justifies the ungodly. The ungodly without qualification. There's even other scriptures. It, Judah had been so rebellious and wicked, they had continued to rebel against God. And to discipline them, God sent them off into exile, into Babylon. And while they were in Babylon, instead of learning from God's discipline, they became more like the Babylonians. They became more wicked. They continued and with a greater pace to run away from God. And God 
through Ezekiel made plea after plea to them. He says in Ezekiel 18.23, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Or again, in the same chapter, he says, Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. About 10 or 11 chapters later, in Ezekiel thirty-three eleven, God says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? And it was Judah that was exiled. But instead of speaking only to Judah, he speaks of Israel as the whole of his people. He loves them so much, even though they are running in the opposite way from him. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. You know this passage. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God loves the wicked so much that he pleads with them, come to me that you might have life. I will justify the ungodly. Why am I saying this? Well, we have in Luke 15 three different parables. And the three parables basically say the same thing. Uh, As Daniel read uh, verses 8 through 10, you, you might have said, well, that sounds a lot like last week, the parable of the lost sheep. Well, Jesus intended it that way. In fact, we have... The same lesson uh, coming up uh, following that, the parable of the prodigal son. And so all three of these parables are teaching the same lesson with a little bit different emphasis. But essentially the same lesson. God's heart for the lost. His desire that he see the lost be saved. And here's the background, why Jesus taught this passage. You'll remember from last week, verse 1, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And there's the Pharisees and the scribes doing what the Pharisees and scribes typically do when Jesus is around. They grumble against him. So verse 2, And the scribes and the Pharisees grumbled, like Israel grumbled, in the wilderness, like Israel grumbled year after year, um, as God was trying to, to uh, as, as God was chasing after them, and they were running, and so they're grumbling. And here's what they're saying in verse two: This man receives sinners, and, and he eats with them. And indeed, our Lord Jesus was eating with them. He was welcoming sinners. He was sitting down to the table with them. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 10, remember when um, Matthew, or as he's also known as Levi, uh, becomes, Jesus says, I'm coming to your house today. And so he goes and he sits down 
in Matthew's house. Matthew was a hated tax collector. And here's what it says in verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. The Lord Jesus is cultivating a relationship with these tax collectors and sinners. He wasn't standing uh, far off from them uh, at, a, at a safe distance so that he could preach to them without himself being corrupted. He sat down at the table with them. He developed relationships with them. He related to them over a meal. And the Pharisees, they, you know, as they grumbled, they were exactly right. Jesus welcomed sinners. And they thought this disqualified him. They thought this was horrific. You know, one commentator uh, wisely said that this grumbling by the Pharisees is really the gospel of the Pharisees. Because they're saying, Jesus welcomes sinners. Hallelujah! Our Savior welcomes sinners. He is the friend of sinners. You know, sometimes we have a tendency to judge our faithfulness by whom we choose to associate. Hanging out with this person or that person might call someone to call into question our faithfulness. Or if I have a conversation with this person or that person, I better sufficiently blast them with the truth, lest I be considered to be less than faithful. Here's Jesus in Matthew's house, in Matthew chapter 9, enjoying dinner, enjoying life with these sinners. Instead of being influenced by them, they are being drawn to him. What the Pharisees saw as a problem, Jesus saw as the solution. One commentator wisely uh, remarked, The very things they criticized was the very thing Jesus had come to do. He had come to make sinners holy for God, and sharing table fellowship was part of his plan. I must point out, Jesus also shared table fellowship with the Pharisees. In other words, they were sinners too. And Jesus, they thought that they were doing themselves a favor. We're going to invite Jesus and we're going to set him straight. We're going to find out where he's wrong so that we can accuse him. Jesus accepts the invitation, sits down at the dinner table with him because he is pursuing their souls. Being a Christian means showing love for the unloveliest of people, including the Pharisees, the scribes that hated him, including the tax collectors and the sinners that were hated by the quote-unquote faithful people. You know, and Jesus didn't, didn't do just a ride-by evangelism. Um, not, uh, Jimbo's not in here. I didn't mean to, to that's how Jimbo does uh, the, the ride-bys. I'm not meaning in that way. But rather, uh, just a quick, you know, pop in, do evangelism, head out. He welcomed them. And Jimbo welcomes 
the uh, the prisoners. I know he also takes out people from College Hill and, and goes to uh, to lunch with them to disciple them. He's in there week in and week out. So please don't think that I was in any way referring to what Jimbo was what Jimbo does uh, because he's committed to these people, and that's a, that's an example to us. We we must be committed to the lost. Um, in order to be able to show them that we love them. Jesus pursued the ungodly like the woman in this parable with unflagging persistence. She pursued that lost coin and would not stop until she found it. Um, You know, this, a lot of, every commentator that I read uh, talked about the con- the typical household at that time. Uh, mud floors, uh, there was a lot of, um, of straw over the floor that acted as a, so you weren't just walking on mud. Um, and it was dark, maybe one little small window in the whole place. They didn't have flashlights. You know, you'd have to light a lamp and go and scour the house. Some of the houses had had a brick floor so that the coin could have fallen between the bricks. In other words, it was, it was, she searched diligently. It was no small thing uh, like it might be in our house. Oh, well, we'll just check under the, uh, the couch with our little um, uh, cell phone flashlight to see if it's there. It was, it was a diligent uh, searching the house. And who's doing the searching? Well, again, this woman is a personification of God, personification of the Lord Jesus, seeking out the lost. And Christ is the one who is doing the searching by his Holy Spirit. He has to do the searching because an unbeliever will never, ever seek him out. They're like the lost coin. There's no life in them. They are dead in their sins. In fact, Jesus is being generous in using the imagery of an inanimate coin because all a coin's going to do is lie there. It's not going to help the owner find it, but it's just going to sit there. It's going to lie there. Unbelievers are not just lying around in their lostness. Unbelievers are rebellious. In fact, they are so rebellious to God that they will not and cannot come to him. They are so intent on pursuing their rebellion to God. They're not as bad as they could be or uh, might be, but when it comes to the things of God, their face is never turned towards him but away. Listen to Ephesians 2. Verses 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul describes sinners, the ungodly, as being dead in their sins. But listen to how active they are. Even though they're dead, they're active in their rebellion. So he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit is now, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Spiritually dead, and they are 
following the course of this world. They are following the prince of the power of the air. They are living in disobedience, following the passions of their flesh. They are very active as they are dead in their sins. And every one of their activities is directed against God. And so, this coin is not going to ever find itself. Jesus unilaterally has to be the one who is seeking. And seek he does without fail, without stopping until he finds it. This coin will never seek him. It must be found by him. And that's such good news for us that we have a persistent Savior who will not stop until he finds us. What lengths will he go? He left the paradise of heaven. He left the unbroken fellowship of his father, where he fellowshiped with him face to face, to come here down to this world, to in humility take a body like we do, with all its weaknesses, in order that he might go to the cross. He lived a perfect life here on this earth, being hated by the scribes and the Pharisees, being um, uh, hated by the people once he would not uh, do the miracles that they wanted him to do. Uh, He was misunderstood by his own mother and brothers at different times. And then he went to the cross, lived a perfect life, but then he went to the cross and died a sinner's death. He who knew no sin, he who had never sinned from eternity past, he who hated sin with all of his heart became sin for us so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. He is a persistent Savior who did not stop until he accomplished everything needful for our salvation. And then he continues to send his spirit to search us out and bring us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, he continues to make intercession for us at the right hand of the Father in order that we might never be lost again. How could we think How could those Pharisees and scribes think? He does not love sinners. In verses 9 and 10, I want you to notice the woman's joy. Uh, It says, And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This picture of Christ's joy is not over all the millions and millions of Christians who have come to to Jesus. It's over one sinner who repents. The angels in heaven are rejoicing there in verse 10. But they are taking their cue from God. God is the one who is rejoicing. The angels are just rejoicing in response to God's rejoicing over one sinner 
who repents. You know, it's interesting here in verse 10, Jesus pulls back the curtain to let us know what happens in heaven. And it it raises the question, well, how would Jesus know what happens in heaven? Well, our Savior is pre-existent. He was in heaven from eternity past. In fact, he created heaven. He knew what was happening. It's funny that the uh, Pharisees and the uh, scribes didn't seem to catch this reference to his deity. They didn't, say, they didn't say, well, how would you know that the angels are re- were rejoicing? Well, they were rejoicing in my joy over one sinner who repents. I saw them do it. I was the, the leader of the parade, the leader of the party. Because he is the personification, or this woman is personifying uh, our Lord Jesus here in our passage. You know, Jesus values every human soul. So should we. He went out of his way for that one lost coin, that one sheep out of 100 that had strayed away. Our Lord Jesus was the friend of sinners, tax collectors. He went to the undesirables. He loved them, and he enjoyed their fellowship. You know, I've struggled. How do I illustrate God's love for sinners uh, adequately? Well, Jesus told a story. I'm going to tell the story, too. Jesus um, told a parable. Uh, He was clever. He made up a parable that uh, personified um, his love. I'm going to try and tell a true story that personifies God's love for sinners. Um, There was a chaplain in World War II. His name was Henry Garricky, and he... um, he was in his 50s when he was a chaplain. They couldn't find enough chaplains uh, after uh, the Allies stormed um, uh, the beaches on D-Day. And there was like one chaplain per 2,500 soldiers. And so he told his wife, I've got to go. So he was um, almost 50 when he signed up and went over and... Um, One son was killed in the war. Another son was badly wounded. So he was old enough that he had sons fighting. And the war ended. And he was called by his commanding officer to um, go be a chaplain for the Nazi war criminals during the Nuremberg trials. Uh, Garricky had been a pastor and his uh, job was much like Jimbo's, going into the jails on a regular basis, uh, being a chaplain in the jails. And um, he also was Lutheran and could speak German. And so he was able to relate to a lot of these uh, German war criminals. So they uh, assigned him to go there after the war instead of sending him home. He was called, he was commanded, he was ordered to be the spiritual advisor to the most wicked people who were living during his time. Uh, I think uh, Hitler and the two guys right underneath him committed suicide, but the rest of his leadership who had been gathered up and arrested, he was, he was assigned 
to to um, to give spiritual counsel, spiritual benefit um, to these war criminals who ultimately were responsible for one of his children being killed and another being uh, badly harmed. And uh, Garricky wrote, "I almost went home because there was a, you know, he was he was past the, the age of enlistment." Uh, He said, I prayed for guidance. Slowly the men at Nuremberg became to me just lost souls whom I was being asked to help. He says, I was terribly frightened. There was nothing frightening in a physical sense because the once all-powerful prisoners were now helpless. It was the nature of their crimes, their connection with the absolute depths of evil. So these were people like Hermann Goring, um, Hiss. Keitel, um, Ribbentrop, and others. Fifteen of Nazi Germany's highest criminals uh, who, were, who were living uh, were brought in, and he was charged to give them spiritual counsel. There was a guy named Fritz Sackel. He was the head of labor supply. He worked, um, in other words, he was one who brought in the millions of slave laborers that they used during World War II and basically worked them to death without mercy. Um, there was Keitel, who was um, was head over the um, armaments, I believe. Anyway, Keitel had a little bit of a, of a background from his mom, but had rejected it. But when... Um, Garricky came around and began ministering to him one evening. Garricky confessed his many sins, and he pleaded for God's mercy um, on the, the basis of sac- Christ's sacrifice for sin. Then there was Sackle. Um, they called him the greatest and cruelest slaver ever since the pharaohs of Egypt. I just mentioned him. And uh, he began to have stirrings within his heart towards Christ. Then there was uh, von Ribbentrop, the, uh, the uh, ambassador to Britain, who um, famously gave the Nazi salute while he was ambassador in the UK. And his response to um, Garricky was, this business of religion isn't as serious as you consider it, and appeared to blow him off. There was Walter uh, Funk, head of the German bank. Uh, he kept the gold teeth and the uh, silver fillings from all the mouths of the regime's victims uh, in his banks. There was Albert Speer um, and many others. Uh, eight of the 15 uh, war criminals ended up becoming Christians, bearing Christian fruit. Uh, Garricky said, usually I know when a person's playing around, I do not give anyone any comfort or assurance if, if, unless I feel like there's real and I'm able to observe real Christian fruit. And eight of these 15 gave themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, Keitel on his knees and under deep emotional stress, um, 
He said, May Christ my Savior stand by me all the way. I shall need him so much. I didn't mention Reader or Raider. He also became a Christian. But he had a lot of doubts about the scriptures. And as he started reading the Bible, he became a very devout Bible student during the months during the trial as he was awaiting his sentence. A von Ribbentrop, uh, who uh, did not show much eagerness towards Christ, became a Christian. In fact, he begged his wife um, to uh, bring their children up in a, in a godly way under the teachings of Scripture. These men uh, became so connected to, to Garricky that they heard that he might go home. And they wrote his wife and begged her, don't send him home yet. And I think this is beneficial. Um, this is part of their, their letter to her. All these war criminals writing to this pastor's wife in Missouri. Your husband, Pastor Garricky, has been taking religious care of the undersigned during the Nuremberg trial. He has been doing so for more than a year and a half. Or, I'm sorry, more than a half a year. We have now heard, dear Miss Garricky, that you wish to see him back home. We understand this wish very well. Nevertheless, we are asking you to put off your wish to gather your family around you. Please consider that we cannot miss your husband now. Our dear Chaplain Garricky is necessary for us, not only as a pastor, but also as the thoroughly good man that he is. At this stage of the trial, it is impossible for any other man than him to break through the walls that have been built up around us in a spiritual sense even stronger than the material one. Therefore, please leave him with us. We shall be deeply indebted to you. These were the wicked architects of the Third Reich. Writing to this poor woman, please leave your dear husband for our spiritual benefit. Uh, Ribbentrop, as he was led up onto the scaffolding, here was his final statement. I place my confidence in the Lamb who made atonement for my sins. May God have mercy on my soul. Then he turned to Garricky and he said, I'll see you again. The hood was placed over his face. The noose was placed around his neck and he dropped through the trap door. Frick who had not shown any real spiritual in, um, uh, eagerness. He was on the, the scaffolding, and he turned to Chaplain Garricky, and he said, secretly, during the chapel services and the times that you were with me, I came to believe that Jesus had washed away my sins. And then the door opened beneath him, and he, and he was gone. Our Lord Jesus loves sinners. The 20th century was a very wicked century. Indescribably wicked. And you would put these men right there at the tip of the spear for wickedness. And here's God. Eight, and then Frick at the end, nine of the 15 came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. 
you know, we're living in a wicked age. And we know that our nation deserves every ounce of God's judgment that we are receiving. And it's easy to take that next step and say, so God has withdrawn his face, that his salvation is, is uh, his love for sinners has withdrawn from us. It's not the case. There's no time stamp on Luke 15, verses 8 through 10. There's no time stamp on God's love for sinners. You have friends, relatives, close relatives that have rejected your advances in preaching the gospel. I want to remind you, Jesus loves sinners. Jesus searches diligently like this woman searched her house, like the, the, um, the shepherd did not stop searching over uh, hill and valley till he found that lost sheep. Pray for your lost loved ones. Pray for your lost um, fellow employees. Pray for your lost neighbors. God loves sinners. Don't give up on them. Don't get angry at them. Joyfully tell them about your Savior who loves you so much, who loves them so much that he went to the cross to die, to justify the ungodly like we were. And if you do not know the Lord Jesus And if you don't feel him seeking you, that's a terrible place to be. That means you've hardened your heart to the point that you cannot sense spiritually that he is drawing you, that he is seeking you. Don't harden your heart and keep running. He's a seeking Savior. Give yourself to him today. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for this uh, portrayal of yourself through this persistent woman. And we thank you for her great joy in finding the lost coin. Lord, even the angels in heaven rejoice because you are rejoicing over every soul that repents. Lord, as we come to the Lord's Supper, as we ourselves are repenting, as we ourselves are thinking of our own sins, oh Lord, help us to look outside of ourselves to our friends, neighbors, relatives, and just to the lost world in general who needs you so much. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.